Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello and welcome in. Yes, it is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 139. Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, this week on the podcast, our first of the brand new year, we uh, lean on a couple of favorites. Regulars on our show always uh, add smart, funny insight and comments. Coming up in the second half, Josh Karp, a talented writer, journalist, uh, author of a wonderful book on the creation of National Lampoon, a futile and stupid gesture, and has written about Orson Welles and is working on a new encyclopedia of the 70s. And we We talked 70s with Josh in our conversation this time around, but we get it underway with, well, our go-to guy over the last four years, though he writes an awful lot about sports. Kerry, there's nobody out there who has been able to capture the essence of Donald Trump over these last four years any better than David Roth. An uncanny and, at times, terrifying uh, ability to glimpse into the psyche of Donald Trump. And I think even David would say that he's not, he's not happy with the fact that no. he's able to get inside that head, but, but boy, he does it better than anybody. And so, uh, we, uh, get things underway by welcoming David Roth of defector who talked with us. Oh, well about, about the presidency and its final days, but also a uh, little sports and about his recent time, spending the holidays here in the state of Maine. David Roth on Downtown, the podcast. Hey, man, how are you? I am. I am in uh, southern Maine, but uh, we left the house today. It was really exciting. There's been a lot of really interesting developments for us. Well, uh, one of them uh, I wanted to bring up uh, is that uh, you had uh, yay, bread from a can. How was that experience for you? <laughs> we've, d- we've done it before. This was uh, We tried to cook some uh, of my uh, late mother-in-law's recipes on uh, Christmas. And so that wound up with us making baked beans in a bean pot and, you know, just generally, uh, you know, my wife is actually from here, so she wasn't totally faking it. I was faking it hard. Uh, but, yeah, we got some of that uh, B&M brown bread with raisins. And uh, every I've had it a few times now, and um, I always like to sort of scandalize people with pictures of it because it is so unholy looking as it comes out of the can. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't love it. I, just, I think it tastes great. I'm, I'm with you on that, and I, I prefer mine without raisins, but, uh, you know, to each his own when it comes to delicacies like that. Yeah, but to their solidified molasses tubes, <laughs> well, it's just a matter of taste. <laughs> so uh, how has your time been here in the, in the quiet pine tree state? It's been good. Uh, I'm glad we came up. I mean, it was we were really, uh, you know, anxious about should we do it and, and how is the best way to do it. And, you know, we rented a car and, you know, quarantined hard for two weeks before we came up and my father-in-law did his best to do the same and you know it was i'm just glad that we're here like this is an important thing for for kate's family and you know we got like maybe 36 hours of the cool wintry main christmas aesthetic before it started raining and being 55 degrees (laughs) for three straight days but it's you know it's special for me i don't really have a lot in the way of main folkways as a you know or christmas folkways as a jewish person from new jersey like it's uh, you know i've seen uh, i saw oliver stones nixon on christmas day with my dad i guess that was a big one wow that that's yeah, a, this is so this is better. that could be a new holiday tradition i like that 
Yeah, watching Paul Sorvino do a Henry Kissinger imitation. <laughs> I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. <laughs> Uh, and there were there were some people that were just uh, you, what was was it Walter Matthau? What was he doing there exactly? Some people I just seemed to wander through the film for no apparent reason. But such great Oliver Stone stuff. I mean, JFK is the ultimate for that too because he didn't even get good wigs for people. And Joe Pesci was like, "Sure, all right, what? When do you need me? Like, you know, put like a a wig from like you know Spirit Halloween on my head and make me speak in a Cajun accent for three scenes. That sounds great." <laughs> JFK was weird because, like, I knew what those people looked like and sounded like, right. you know? Like, and so some of them were good and some of them were James Woods, but it was still, like, exciting to <laughs> see them trying. Oh, man. Uh, well, so much so much to talk about here as we, we try and make some measure of sense out of 2020. But I think yeah, if we were to begin, I mean, a good place to start might be, oh, God, I love Defector so much, but... I think Bar Barry Pachesky's wonderful piece on things that people got stuck in orifices this year, that might be the best summary of 2020. It, you know, it is. Every year he does it, and it is horrifying to read. Like, I seriously, you know, physically find myself crossing my legs, taking breaks, like just in general uh, needing to, to sort of get in a, uh, a much more comfortable physical space. Than oh, I yes. Really would need to be, <laughs> but it is, yeah, there's something about uh, just that parade of escalating idiocy and self-damage that really does have a 2020 feel to it. Right, because it, it feels like the whole year was, in some measure, people sticking things where they don't belong. Sticking things where they don't belong, and then, I mean, the best part of it every year, so this is something that Barry was doing going back to Deadspin, uh, and it is exactly what it sounds like, but the notes are all from, uh, like, you know, <laughs> doctor's reports, all publicly available stuff. And the best ones have like a story behind it. Oh, yes. Where it'll yeah. be like, this, I, I accidentally got a marble stuck in my ear canal. Um, and so I was trying to get it out using pieces of notebook paper. And then the notebook paper got stuck. And then I went to the doctor. <laughs> but it's it's always the explanation that does it for me. Oh, yeah, I agree. If someone was like, yeah, I'm intentionally into that. That's my kink is putting a marble into my ear canal. But then being like, well, you know, you know, I was at home. I was, you know, just sort of trying to do something. And one thing led to another. And I had a marble and three sheets of notebook paper yeah. stuck in my yeah, I accidentally squatted in the shower. And I, I somehow, I don't That's know. the one. <laughs> <laughs> always. I feel like it must be bad enough to be a doctor in that situation where you're like, all right, I think I see the problem. And the guy's like, well, no, no, it's not what it looks like. <laughs> and you want to, if, you're, if you have any kind of bedside manner, you know, you want you want to give them that that fantasy. Let them think that you believe their story. Yeah, I mean, it's, at some point too, like I really feel like there has to. It's like the polite thing to do is be like, "Oh, we see this all the time. This is very common." <laughs> it's like one of the bigger risks of showering. This is why I advise all my patients not to do it. I don't know how how you could play it off at some point. Uh, well, let's talk a little baseball. It, it's it's almost bizarre. It's otherworldly in 2020 that the Mets seem to have an owner who's actually thinking about what might be best for fans. It's exciting. I mean, I feel like it's gonna it'll get weird for him. The new owner is a uh, I guess I can call him a prolific financial criminal. He didn't admit to any wrongdoing, but he did pay a billion dollars in fines and agree not to have his hedge fund anymore. But uh, he had more than a billion dollars to spare. He bought the Mets. And he 
so far seems to be making good hires and letting them do their job. And he's tweeting a lot, which is the sort of thing that it's always, uh, you know, it's thrilling right up until it's not. You know, like I think at this point, like once you've had a, a major authority figure who tweets too much in your life, as everybody sort of has now for the last few years, part of me is just like, just send postcards, man. Like you don't need to do this. <laughs> but he cares, and uh, they haven't done anything, you know, really mind blowing yet. I mean, I think the San Diego Padres are on the verge of having more major transactions today than the rest of Major League Baseball's had all off season. But uh, the experience of having an owner who has enough money and it doesn't mind spending it on the team is a, that's a new one for me. I'm enjoying it. Uh, NBA season got underway. It seems like we just wrapped up the previous one, but some interesting things already. Most of all to me was glancing. I think I first saw it on Twitter last night. I wasn't watching the game, but to see that halftime score of the Clippers game. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see it, but that was, it's one thing to be like, all right, Kawhi Leonard's not playing, which, you know, he wasn't playing in the game. They were down by 50 points at the half. Yeah, that like, was I mean, nuts. And that's just a team that's supposed to compete for a championship this year. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of a Clippers fan. I went to school out there, and as a masochist, uh, I would not permit myself to cheer for the Lakers. So it was like whatever team was on local TV. And that was uh, some really miserable L.A. Clippers teams, like pre-Lamar Odom into early Lamar Odom. Not a golden age by any stretch. But, you know, this was as good a Clippers roster, I think, going into, I guess really last year's was better. But going into this year, like, I, I did not anticipate that they would come out as discombobulated. But the whole league seems kind of off so far. Like, every game I've watched has been, like, weirdly more uncanny than the bubble games were. Like, because it's sort of, they're playing on the home courts, it sort of looks like it's supposed to look, but like everybody's just back rimming jump shots and getting hurt. Yeah, you know, the Celtics uh, surprisingly beat Milwaukee in their opening game, despite the fact that about a third of the roster is out. And then they, they just look terrible against the Brooklyn Nets and, and have been completely flat ever since then. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I think they're going to be okay. I think it's just, you know, but a lot of the good teams, I mean, the Bucks got wiped out by the Knicks last mm. night. And that's a team that, it, you know, the Knicks are not quite as bad, I think, as they were last year. I mean, they were appallingly badly coached at the start of the year and everything, but the Bucks should not be losing by 20 points to the Knicks. I mean, this really has that feeling. A lot of the baseball season felt like this at the beginning, too. And it did wind up with good baseball by October. But that first month just sort of had that feeling of, like, you know, third week of spring training quality baseball. And in this case, it's like a, a badly played NBA game or an NBA game where like guys are kind of, you know, nursing injuries and easing into it and all of that. Like, it's not great basketball. The college stuff has been way worse. <laughs> than oh, yeah. too. I mean, it's just not a, a good year for it so far. We're talking with David Roth of Defector here on Downtown. All right, let's let's take a step back if we can. We're almost ready to turn the page on the calendar. So what have we learned in 2020? Wow. Uh, <laughs> this is supposing that we learned anything. Right. I mean, this was as bad a year as I can remember. I mean, it was, and it was good for me in a lot of ways. I mean, it was, we started a website. That was great, you know, like, but man, it's just really hard to sort of look at the country the same way <laughs> as it was even, you know, I think if you were to go back 12 months, uh, neither you nor I would have been especially sanguine on a possibility of 2020, but I sure did not anticipate it being like this. I would love to believe that there was some 
you know, sort of broader understanding of the idea that uh, all of our lives are interrelated in some way, you know, that like we live in a society for lack of a less cliched phrase. But like, I think, I feel like in many ways we missed that opportunity, you know, that like, or that at the very least that realization wasn't spread widely enough. Well, I, I feel like where there are two camps, there are those who, who believe that and who live that through their actions. And then there's this group that I, I want to believe is, is fairly small, but vocal that doesn't think that way at all. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, and I feel like this has been the the sort of the, the grim part of the way that the pandemic has kind of proceeded across the country is that it's like, you know, the stuff that when I remember talking to you in March and April and, you know, what New York City was like, and it was very bad, you know, but it was also New York City is not representative of any other place. I mean, honestly, like the neighborhood I live in is a representative of New York City, but like that. I think it felt abstracted in a way to people because it was happening, you know, in this place that was often far away. And it just seems like now it is everywhere. And I don't know if that is a realization waiting to happen or if it's just the sort of thing that, you know, I I haven't read any of the big books about the 1918 pandemic, you know, the flu Mm. pandemic. But in many ways, it seems like the trajectory of that one followed that this one and that one sort of echo each other in ways that you'd hope that in a hundred years, you know, 102 years that people would be able to sort that stuff out. <laughs> and yet it was the same sort of deal. I mean, that like people did lock down and then they got bored and then like all these cities had big parades and then people got sick again. Like it's, that, like we've invented more interesting entertainments than parades in the subsequent a hundred years, but like, it doesn't really seem like any of the other stuff has kept pace the way you might want. We're, we're days away, I assume this will happen, with the departure of Donald Trump from the White House. Some people seem shocked, but wasn't this always the way it was going to end? Yeah, I was talking to my father-in-law the other day was saying that he had been saying that years ago. And I think that he's correct. And, you know, I sort of always thought that it would end badly. I just didn't know exactly how it would go. You know, that like there was no way that this was going to end with like a dignified transfer of power. You know, that's just not uh, not the guy's move. But I, I don't think I expected it to be as clammy and pathetic as it is. And I think in some ways there's some there's a relief in that. I mean, obviously, there's mm. tens of millions of people that believe that, uh, you know, that this was stolen and that there's all kinds of stuff that we don't know and we need to look into, but they won't look into it because they're very unfair, to, you know, whatever. And I don't know how to talk to to people like that, but I still have this feeling that if this had been closer, that it could have been like the 2000 election, you know, that like the the machine that Republicans have, you know, that they kicked into action in Florida in 2000 uh, would have gone into action in whatever one state it was needed in. But in this case, he just didn't run well enough. You know, I think that unless you're really on that Kool-Aid very hard, I just don't think that this is... There hasn't been like a compelling case made. So it's just been this kind of like sad, bad faith clown show that's been going on. And I don't, you know, whatever, it doesn't make it any easier to take. But uh, it is like funnier that it involves like Rudy Giuliani getting so upset that he farts during an open <laughs> session of the Wisconsin state legislature. Like that's the end that this administration deserves. <laughs> well, and, and we often talk about uh, some of the characters in, in Trump's White House orbit, but I'm, I think I'm more fascinated now by the other elected officials who have, have joined in in this 
in this parade down the stretch. The people like Mo Brooks and and you know, Tommy Tuberville, who is some is yeah. a United States senator. I can't even say the phrase without laughing. It's unreal. There was somebody, the New York Times wrote a story about uh, John Ossoff today that was talking about how thin his resume was. And he's very young and he hasn't really done that much. But man, like Tommy Tuberville, like he's won one more bowl game than he's lost every place he's ever worked. He, the guy went to the Belk Bowl and lost at the Belk Bowl. That is a life achievement of him. Like that was it, like you can't point to that much other stuff that he's done that qualifies him to be a senator. I mean, I, I happen to think very highly of the Bill Bowl, uh, but <laughs> like the idea that these guys are just in there kind of forever. Like, there is something like weird about the the like the electing somebody that like is just transparently not there to govern and is just there to like periodically go on TV and like do interesting things theoretically or like say inflammatory stuff that people react to. That doesn't. I mean. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just that people don't really expect very much from their government at this point. No, so at that, some point, it's like, why not elect Tommy Tuberville, right? And the only pleasure I take in this is is watching, and it's beginning to happen more and more, watching them eat each other. That I, I truly enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just, there's no, like, loyalty really built into any of this. Everybody's sort of there for their personal brand. And I feel like this is... You know, if left to their own devices, I, I do really do feel like most of the like Republican members of the House would just do like multi-level marketing schemes to each other, <laughs> like they would sell each other scammy vitamins. But that's like their real passion is just kind of like getting over on other people. Right. But you know, but they have to pretend to like vote on laws too. In between that. All right, I want to end on on an up note here, and I was fascinated by this. And so I, I need to know more uh, details about this YouTube channel, your father-in-law was watching uh, with, with uh, dudes with metal detectors. Tell me more. So I always love talking to you. This is it's one of the great treats of my life. <laughs> one thing that I especially enjoy about it is that I am always forced to answer for one idiotic tweet every time I come on downtown. <laughs> the no, 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 no. You read my tweet, my, my feed very closely. I appreciate it. It's good. This is like, <laughs> honestly, my therapist should be doing it. So <laughs> my, my father-in-law has uh, been absolutely crushing episodes of a YouTube show called Hoover Boys, which is a bunch of guys from Maryland with really strong Maryland accents and metal detectors who go out looking for old coins and other historic metal doodads in various different properties. Sometimes they go to England, sometimes they go to the South. A lot of times they're just around the greater, you know, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia area. And it is like, some of them are firemen. Some of them are off-duty cops. One guy doesn't want his face shown, so he's just rendered as, like, Mario from <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and it is, I've only seen bits of it, but I hear it because my father-in-law does not have the best hearing, so he's just watching on his phone full blast, and it is just metal detector sounds. And then these guys being like, holy, no way. Did you just find, like, a two-real coin? No way, bro. And, like, that is what it is. And... I've gone over the course of five days, I've completely Stockholm syndromed my way into it. Like now I love the Hoover boys. I love their theme. Like I want them to find all the coins that they want to find. Like it's, it went from at the beginning, me being like, there's not like a quieter way to listen to it because it's metal detector sounds. It's really hard to, to read when you're just hearing like in the background all the time. Probably hard to listen to too. I'm sorry about that. But, 
But over time, I've been like, they're so excited to find their coins. They seem like nice guys. They're always like supporting each other. So I'm like, the Hoover boys are cool to me. I recommend it on I'm, YouTube. I'm going for a search tonight because in 2020, <laughs> you, you find your pleasure where you can. Absolutely true. Uh, David, it's always a pleasure for us. Thanks so much for making a little time for us on your uh, your main excursion here. And we wish you a very, very happy new year and look forward to catching up with you in a much improved 2021. Right on. And to you. We'll do better next year. The always great David Roth of Defector with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a little break, get a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then come back and talk some 70s. With Josh Carr. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And so the battle lines are drawn. The network captains have collected their troops. The scene of combat right there. Malibu Beach, California. The campus of Pepperdine University. <laughs> I wish you could see the video. Uh, that's, of course, the introduction to the Battle of the Network Stars, Howard Cosell, and uh, one of the epic events of the 1970s. Our friend, writer Josh Karp, working on an encyclopedia of the 70s. And so we had a chance to talk recently about some of the high or low lights of that decade, including Battle of the Network Stars. We want to have more of a conversation with you about uh, one of the many projects you're working on. An encyclopedia of the 70s. And, and I realize we covered a lot of ground last time, but we left out maybe one of the great cultural touchstones of that decade. And that is, to me, Battle of the Network Stars. Oh. It, <laughs> that, that is like the entire decade right there in one weird annual pseudo sporting event between celebrities. It, 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 that was honestly like my possibly my favorite thing. You know, I, I looked forward to that like the Super Bowl, and I looked forward to the Super Bowl as a kid. But really, nothing was 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 as good as Battle of the Network Stars. Yeah, and it, part of it was to see you know things that you you might not see anywhere else. You know, like Ed Asner in shorts. Uh, but then <laughs> you know, I was I don't know how old I was, I'm a teenager. And so, you know, to see uh, anything that involved um, attractive actresses in swimsuits as a burgeoning teenager wondering what life was all about, that was fascinating, too. I, oh, Catherine Bach in a dunk tank. I oh, yes. Daisy yeah. Duke and uh, Linda <laughs> Carter. Those were both formative experiences for me uh, as a young man. And this is how messed up I am. I actually have a – and I don't know that they were captains every year, but I have a very vivid recollection of the three captains for each network. So, you know, you had ABC, NBC, and CBS when people cared about networks. And it was Telly Savalas, <laughs> Gabe Kaplan, and Robert Conrad. Robert Conrad, yes. Who, who, even though I was a CBS guy, I don't know why, but I was pulling for CBS, but I loved Robert Conrad, well, going back to the wild, wild west days. 
Right. It, it was, I mean, it was literally, uh, <laughs> there is nothing weirder to me than, than looking back, I, I, you know, Telly Savalas in like a red, you know, zip up sweatsuit with no shirt under it, <laughs> which was, which was just fantastic. And just the whole, all the weirdness. I remember listening to uh, Howard Cosell. I mean, first of all, one of the great things is one year, and I don't know which year it was, the three people calling it were Cosell, Bruce Jenner, and OJ. <laughs> oh, my word. Wow. Like, I mean, talk about a view. If, <laughs> if only we knew. Right. right. <laughs> like, back when those guys were like the two most iconic American males. You know, like what could go wrong? Yeah, yeah. If you can only see the future. My my. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it, and, um, it, it amazes but, me that I actually had a rooting interest, but you know that's that's where we were in the seventies, right? Oh, yeah, I totally cared cared deeply about it, right? And, and I, I remember listening to Howard Cosell give a lengthy description of what kind of great athlete Scott Bayo could have been <laughs> had he not become an actor. <laughs> And he was quarterbacking a touch football game at the age of like 16, <laughs> you know, <laughs> throwing, throwing passes, you know, to, uh, to the guy who played Ruben Kincaid or something, you know, and you're just oh. you're Dave Madden and you're oh. just like, you're like, really? Even then, even at the age of 10, I was like, I don't think Scott Bay was that good athlete. <laughs> He's not getting, he said something about, I can't remember. He mentioned something about how he could have played football at UCLA or something. And I was like, Oh, come on. Really Howard. <laughs> right. but no, that was the best. I mean, and it was so much better. You know, I mean, you think about it's kind of like a weird reality television event, right? Because it oh, was, yeah. you know, but it was like celebrities in their prime competing, <laughs> you know, in, in a tug of war, remember there was that incredibly important tug of war, <laughs> you know, event, and there was uh, there was like uh, so that there was an obstacle course, you know, watching Grant Goodeve run an obstacle course. Right. Like, it was so incredibly thinking weird. to yourself, no, man, that that happen. Gary Sandy is quite the athlete, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right, there was, and I can't remember. I I, I believe. There was a, um, you know, speaking of Ed Asner, there was a, a, a swimming relay <laughs> that Ed Asner anchored. He, he was like bringing it home <laughs> for CBS. It was so weird. I mean, you couldn't make it. That was the great thing about the seventies is it was weird without trying, you oh, know, now, right. now, you know, you have stuff that, you know, I mean, you, you watch, you know, those, you know, the real housewives or, you know, or the Kardashians and they were still on and, that stuff's all contrived. This was just weird. There was no, you know, nothing else, you know, to, uh, <laughs> to it. It was just, it was just exceptionally weird. And it was totally part of mainstream part of the culture. We're talking with Josh Carp here on downtown. I was thinking about movies and of course it's the seventies acclaimed as a decade of, of great films and, and wonderful directors uh, from the Godfather and, and so many others along the way. And I, I was trying to think, is there a, is there a movie from that decade, Josh, that that was acclaimed at the time that, that people loved that you know, now 40, 45 years down the road, we look at and say, well, maybe it, maybe it wasn't all that good. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I um, I'm trying to think, you know, I think to me, it's more stuff that people I'm sure there were movies 
like that. Though, whenever I think of a movie, and this is an unpopular opinion, that people thought was great in its time, that I that I thought was awful in its time and remains awful to me, is Titanic. I'm always like... Oh, I hate Titanic. Oh, Titanic. I'm like, that's like, you know, that's the worst kind of movie and everybody thinks it's genius. But in the 70s, I think there were movies that were not looked on as great that I think were really, you know, ter- terrific movies. And there were so many movies that, uh, you know, um, I, a movie like, honestly, North Dallas 40, which is like one, mm. a movie I love. Which, you know, people were kind of like, wow, that's a weird, you know, football movie with Nick Nolte. But that was a terrific movie that nobody, you know, I think was really in love with. Well, I remember as, as a kid in the 70s thinking, oh, my God, the Poseidon Adventure. What a what a silly, silly movie. Well, it happened to be on the other night. Uh-huh. And I was I was glued to it because I couldn't remember who lived and died at the end. And and, and there I was, you know, pulling like, like crazy for Ernest Borgnine. And I thought this... Is it better than I remember, or have I have I become the target audience for this just by aging? <laughs> well, well, the disaster movies were so great because they were filled with like Oscar winners. Like, like I think Jimmy Stewart was on one of the airplanes in, in one of the you know uh, airport movies. Yeah, yeah. Was like I think he was on the flight that actually went down in the Bermuda Triangle, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> which is you know, Jimmy Stewart? Like, really? You know, and, and what, The Towering Inferno had both Steve McQueen and Paul Newman in it? Right. You know, it, that's one of the things that I just love about that decade is that, you know, somebody who, you know, people who are big will do a crap movie now, but they won't do something that, you know, wh- where they aren't doing it like as a folly, you know, where it's like, hey, look at me, I'm George Clooney, I'm making this, you know, I'm making a cameo in this stupid movie. Then it was like, you know, somebody like Paul Newman, who's, you know, the biggest movie star in the world, is like, yeah, sure, I'll be in the Towering Inferno. You know, why not? You know, what? You know, why don't? Why, why wouldn't I be in Earthquake? You know, or, or some, mm. you know, film film like that. So that was kind of great. I mean, I think that everybody's willingness to participate in kind of schlock culture was one of my favorite things about that time. Where do you come down on Mel Brooks? Because for my money, I, the two funniest movies of the decade were in, in the order changes from year to year with me. But Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. Oh, I, I love Mel Brooks. I mean, I, I, but I like love about Mel Brooks, first of all, is the relentlessness of his humor. Oh, he's, yes. He's somebody who you can just tell if you're not la- if you were in a room with him and he felt the need to make you laugh, which I imagine he would continually feel the need to do anytime he was around people, he just wouldn't stop. And he would not, you know, would not stop while you were, were absolutely dying. I, I always think about um, my dad was a huge Mel Brooks fan. And uh, I mean, I loved Blazing Saddles. I loved uh, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, I, I loved uh, Young Frankenstein. But I always think about the movie High Anxiety. Oh, God, um, yes. Which was a parody of Hitchcock movies, but had one of the, you know, um, you know, have, having grown up Jewish, had one of the all time great Jewish jokes ever in it, which is when he's addressing, he's a, he's a, he's a therapist and he's addressing a therapist convention in San Francisco. And he says, and he's standing in front of posters of, uh, of Freud, um, Jung and Dr. Joyce brothers, which I always love. <laughs> and he said, he goes, 
these three great, you know, great geniuses, these forebears, he said, these people who were trailblazers, he said, have made for us a good living. And I <laughs> that is like, you know, to be as a Jewish person, that is like one of the best Jewish jokes ever. Just, you know, that would be his take would be they've made a good we make a good living. We're comfortable. So well, I, love I love the love scene that. where he where he sings high anxiety. <laughs> That's right. just brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I remember more of the lyrics than I should. Yeah, that's that's great. And there's so much stuff in those movies. I mean, you know, and it's funny. My kids, I mean, I have you know teenagers down to a twelve year old. I'm like, yeah, they. It's funny because those movies really hold up. They love Blazing Saddles, though they don't get references to you know everybody in town being named Howard Johnson. <laughs> um, you know, which is a hard <laughs> hard one to explain. That's you know. You know, that's like, like, you know, explaining, you know, life, life before radio or something to them. So. Now, I also loved Woody Allen movies uh, for, for years. Annie Hall was uh, one of my favorites. And I, boy, I still watch if they come on, but I don't feel good about it. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really hard. I mean, I, because I, I love, especially his movies from that era. Um, and just how... You know, just how, how smart they were and how ridiculous they were. I always, um, you know, speaking of Howard Cosell, I remember in bananas. <laughs> bananas, yes. <laughs> yeah, when he when he's when he's 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 uh, he's calling an execution, right? As, as somebody's like they're about to urge assassination, and um, and, and then does play by play for the wedding night as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that Woody Allen gives his character. The, the best name in any Woody Allen movie, which is the main character's name, Fielding Mellon, <laughs> which I don't even know. That's like, I would retire if I just came up with that name yes. for a movie. I'd be like, that's a peak. <laughs> and I just remember Cosell's voice with Woody Allen running around a corner and, you know, in the public square lane, he goes, and here comes Mellish. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I think we can all relate to the, uh, in current times, to the, uh, the guy who who is the uh, what's it called um, the revolutionary leader who takes over San Marcos. Yes, <laughs> and when he he says, you know, he, you know, they they all follow out of the revolution and everybody's a big part of it. But he's a, you know, the first new love, you know, uh, of uh, San Marcos is everybody must change their underwear four times a day, <laughs> but, and they must wear it on the outside so that we can check. And I, in the Trump era, I think that is an extremely relatable <laughs> moment. You know, that seemed really ridiculous <laughs> at the time. I want to bring it to the to the present day for, for just a moment, because uh, you, you've written so much and, and you know Orson Welles uh, so very well. Have you had a chance to watch Mank yet? You know, I watched the first 30 minutes of it and I need to watch the rest. Um, I, I So I don't know, you know, exactly. I mean, I, I know from everybody's kind of uproar and, you know, hue and cry about, you know, the well stuff in the film. Um, I, I, what's funny is my, you know, people are upset, obviously, you know, that um, the film seems to give Mankiewicz. Have you watched the entire thing yet? I, I have. And it was, yeah, that, and that bothered me a little bit. At the same time, it was, it's a beautiful movie. And, and the yeah. guy playing Wells, man, you, you swear to God, it's Orson Wells. He's, He's great, He's but, but I also had trouble with with you know a sixty one year old playing forty three year old Max. So there, there were issues with it. Yes, 
Right. I mean, that, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I was okay with what I thought, and and I honestly, you know, I've always, while I know that you know Wells and Mankiewicz were certainly extremely, you know, collaborative on the script, and you know, really, Mankiewicz kind of created, as far as I can, as far as I recall, you know, the outline and the basic script, and Wells really turned it into a masterpiece, both before production and during production. Um, and in fact, uh, Alex Ross from uh, the New Yorker, who's a big Wells fanatic, uh, posted a bunch of stuff on Twitter today of actual notes of what, that Wells had put on the script, which was really, you know, really interesting. But I think, you know, aside from that, you know, the truth is, I, I think filmmakers, you know, when you make a movie, even if it's based on historical fact, you know, you have a right. You know, I mean, if I'm going to accept Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> you know, having... Uh, <laughs> you know, having uh, Brad Pitt kill, um, you know, Charles Manson or whatever happened in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or killing Hitler, you know, I guess I, I, I can certainly accept that David Fincher is going to, you know, mess with the facts a little bit. I think that's what people, that's what, you know, that's what you need to do. You need to make the story, you know, you need to do what you need to do without being ridiculous to make the changes that reflect the story you want to tell. You know, the idea is always to be kind of, Accurate, but not necessarily factual. Josh Karp with us here on downtown. All right, uh, back to the seventies, and uh, at the time, uh, I was working on the radio at the time as a, as a very young guy when when disco came to prominence, and I I did not like it at the time. I despised disco, and again, I don't know what's happened to me. I've I've gotten weak as the years have gone by. Now I'll hear some of those songs, and, and not all of them, but you know, like some of the BG songs, some of the Saturday Night Fever stuff. I'll hear and say. Well, that's not so bad in retrospect. How do you feel about that era of, of music, especially the latter half of the decade? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, since I, I I live in the town where they had disco demolition nights. Right, you know, right. At, Steve Dahl. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that was also, you know, I mean, I was, you know, Steve Dahl was it here. Um, so that was a huge event for anybody who was kind of coming of age at the time. Um, what's funny is I don't know that I've, you know, I, I don't mind disco music the way I used to. I, I find myself liking things and, and I wish I was liking them. Ironically, I don't know why I'm liking them. <laughs> I, 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 I can't figure out the reason, but things that like I would have turned off in a heartbeat anytime up until eight years ago, which is stuff like Gordon Lightfoot, which I always <laughs> <laughs> made me, you know, want to want to go drown myself in the bathtub, you know, and I will literally be like, the Edmund Fitzgerald, and I don't know if it's the spell or, oh, or yeah. what it yeah. is. I mean, I, I draw the line at Seasons in the Sun. That was... Oof, yeah. And we've had Terry yeah, Jacks was, on the show, and he's an awfully nice man, but I, I still I still can't listen. The one I heard the other day, and, and yes, I, I'm... Because you know, you're always drawn to the music from from when you were young and, and instant right. memories. But I heard a song, and, and I don't know if you remember. I think, God, I think his name was David Geddes. It was, for my money, one of the worst songs of that decade. A song called "Run, Joey, Run." Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I re I remember that well. I mean, what's weird is it, it, all those songs are like the Kennedy assassination for me. I can like remember where I was. <laughs> And I heard them on several different occasions. Like I remember what whose friend, what friend's living room I was in hearing "Run, Joey, Run." Um, you know, it's, it's. I don't know why 
<laughs> those songs that I hated so much left such an impression on me. But yeah, I, I, I remember Run Joey Run uh, extremely well. And I actually was there. A, did they make some kind of weird TV show about a dog called Run Joey Run at some point in the seventies? I feel like there was. I'm sure they must have. <laughs> Sounds... Yeah, I know I do because I think I I remember seeing it seeing a commercial for it when uh, when uh, Hank Aaron hit his hit his 715 oh, wow. home run. I remember it was there was a, it was it had come right after a Run Joey Run I believe commercial. So that was I'll have to check my. <laughs> Did you find something, Carrie? That... Yes, there was a uh, a show called Run Joe Run, a Saturday morning television program on NBC <laughs> for two seasons. It actually it got two seasons out of it apparently. And was there a dog involved? Uh, yes. Uh, Joe is a German shepherd. Yes. Wow. Uh, in the uh, in the canine corps. <laughs> There's a trailer for it on YouTube, by the way. Run Joe Runs Dash Season One, and it's it's the well, I actually think it's the opening sequence or something to it. Oh, wow. I'm that's where I'm going right after I get off. It, it looks like a great piece of art. <laughs> Wow, I have forgotten all about that. Thank you for pulling that one out. <laughs> Thank you for making me feel like I haven't lost my mind. Oh, so man, I, I could do this every day. So there we go, Hank Aaron and Run Joe Run. So, yeah, there we go. That's impressive work. All right, well, listen, you know, that makes me think that we've got to do another chapter of this conversation and, and uh, chat about some of those Saturday morning kid shows, including, of course, H.R. Puff and stuff and others the next time we get together. I would love to. All right, Josh. <laughs> Anytime to talk about HR Puff and stuff is, is good for me. Always great. Uh, so much fun, Josh. We appreciate it, as always. And uh, we'll do it again before too long, uh, perhaps in the new year. Thank you. I would love that. The always entertaining Josh Carp with us here on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to Josh, to David Roth as well, and thanks to you for spending some time with us this week. Hope you join us next time right here on Downtown, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>